0: Here's Lisa, living fearlessly with Lisa McDonald.
1: Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 175 countries. 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest. So who is my guest of this Friday? Well, what I can tell you is Dr. Fleet Mall, PhD and author, is a renowned growth mindset teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world, both in person and online through HeartMind Institute. He's a meditation teacher, executive coach, seminar leader, social entrepreneur who works at the intersection of personal and social transformation fleet founded the prison mindfulness institute and national prison hospice association catalyzing two national movements while serving a 14 year mandatory minimum federal drug sentence from 1985 to 1999. Dr. Mall developed the Radical Responsibility Empowerment Model that embraces 100% ownership for each and every circumstance we face, free of blaming oneself or others. Fleet is a Rashi Zen Master in the International Zen Peacemaker Order and Achara Senior Dharma Teacher in the Global Shambhala Meditation Community. He is the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly live our higher purpose and become an unstoppable force for good in the world. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald, my friend. How are you, Dr. Fleet?
2: I'm great, and it's great to be with you today, Lisa.
1: Well, it's an honor and it's a privilege to have you. I'm super excited to be showcasing you and sharing you with my uh, global listening audience and the podcast subscribers. So, why don't we just dive right in with the obvious question that most listeners are probably questioning? So, do you want to offer some context around the drug charge that uh, provided the sentencing and what that experience did cathartically to put you on the trajectory of how people would now come to understand you and recognize you and view you
2: yeah i wish that was a simple story but i'll try to uh, i'll try That's to okay. do it i'll try to do it succinctly uh you know i'm uh, of the baby boomer generation and i was one of those of my generation that came up through the 60s with kind of a kind of a, a dual major, as it were. I was always a spiritual seeker. And at the same time, I was classic angry young man and graduated from high school in 68, one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history with the with the Kennedy and King assassinations and a lot more going on. And, and I just went headlong into the counterculture of that era and uh, went to a big state university and was basically majoring in drug, second rock and roll and and radical politics. And at the same time, I still always had this kind of seeker mindset. And uh, so that took me down a lot of twisted paths. I I got in pretty pretty hardcore drug use for a while. Uh, But I eventually got so alienated, I left the country when Nixon was reelected. I just really wanted to get out. I wanted to get away from the drug scene. I wanted to get away from the U.S. And I started traveling throughout Latin America and ended up down in South America, I was really just looking for something real, something authentic, because I remember things being pretty real and plugged in and magical when I was a little kid. And then it all went to gray tones at one point. And maybe that's a normal developmental process, but I never made peace with it. So I was always looking for something, you know, and kind of I thought I found something, you know, in the youth movement and the the drugs and all the rest. But it all, you know, it's it all has a lot of baggage with it. Maybe, maybe it does point to something genuine in some cases, but it has a lot of Baggage and if you have addictive propensities, like I did with a big hole in my gut, you know the um it's not a good road to go down, so at any rate, I ended up in uh traveling throughout Latin America, some amazing travels and times and a lot of learning and but eventually fell into small scale drug smuggling as a way to keep living outside the system and I justified it by I had this real strong us versus them thing going on back then, and, you know I saw the society as hypocritical and so you know, I talked myself into basically criminal activity and living outside the system in that way, while at the same time continuing to uh, pursue spiritual interests. And and, um, you know, I would kind of zeroed in on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition uh, at one point, living way up in the Andes Mountains in Peru and very isolated place. And and uh, and when I heard about um, a Tibetan master named Chogun Phum, Phum founding Naropa, Institute then, now in Naropa University in 1974. I just knew I had to go there. And so I went there and got my master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology and became his student, got very deeply involved in, a, in the Buddhist path. But I still had this shadow life going on and my marriage fell apart because of my craziness. And so I kept my problems at bay with money. I would disappear once or twice a year and do a smuggling run and kept that secret from my teacher and community. And And, uh, I knew I had to get out of that before I could untangle it all, uh, ended up earning my way into a 14 year prison sentence. Um, so I went into prison. A lot of people don't, you know, they, they think I probably got involved in meditation in prison or something, but actually I've been pretty deeply trained for about 10 years, even as a teacher. Uh, but I had this whole secret shadow life going on. And, and so when I got locked up, that all stopped, thank goodness. And I was absolutely devastated because my son was nine years old at the time, and I realized he was going to grow up without a dad. And I was originally sentenced to 30 years, no parole. I pretty much thought my life was over. I was 35, and I they said in the next day in the paper I'd be 65 before I'd have any chance for release. And so uh, it turned out the way they gave out, the way you get good time under the old law. Fortunately, I was sentenced before 1987 because they still had, uh, you got a significant good time then if you stayed out of trouble. There's a lot less of that available now, post '87, and also they used to have parole back then in the federal system. But I actually had a no parole sentence, so I wasn't eligible for parole anyway. But so, uh, uh, anyway, I ended up serving 14 and a half years. And uh, but you know, I became from the moment of getting locked up, I just became. I was. I went through a real dark night of the soul experience. Just absolutely devastated over what I'd done to my son, what I'd done to myself. I mean, I'd literally torched my life. on how I'd let my community down, my family down. And and I just became radically dedicated to do something good with my life, to give my son a better legacy than just his dad went to prison, or even that his dad died in prison, because I had no surety that I would survive that time. And um, so that became a, a journey for me of really dedicating myself to uh, really uh, getting really serious about my spiritual practice and training, but also uh, living a life of service there in the prison. I was I happened to be sent to the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners, which is the maximum security prison hospital in the federal prison system. It's in Springfield, Missouri. And the AIDS epidemic was just going into full swing, 1985. And so it was a place of tremendous, horrific suffering. And and, uh, I got very involved there and helped start the first hospice program uh, in a prison anywhere and went on to start National Prison Hospice Association and get that model out to the world. There's now probably 75 or 80 hospices and state and federal prisons in this country, and as a result, it completely transformed the nature of end of life care, really impacted medical care in prisons. Um, I also was teaching meditation there in a prison from the beginning, and I eventually started Prison Dharma Network to, to support volunteers and prisoners and people involved uh, around the world that were interested in that, and uh, that's a thriving organization today, mostly known as Prison Mindfulness Institute. And uh, my day job was teaching school. I was a school teacher for 14 years, helping other prisoners learn to read or get their GED or in some cases study for correspondent college courses. So, um, you know, and uh, I led this kind of monastic, very disciplined life. I got up. I only slept four or five hours a night. I got up early in the morning, did intensive meditation practice, did my work all day. Came back, they, you know, yeah, they lock you down at nine nine p.m. So I, I'd, I'd be back. I'd study for three hours, and then meditate a couple more hours, and then sleep four hours. And I led this very, very disciplined monastic lifestyle, focused on service for fourteen years, and and that uh, that really completely transformed my life. And uh, I got out in '99, and I've had nothing but opportunities to serve ever since.
1: Beautiful. Well, I appreciate your candor and I appreciate you being raw and vulnerable and and transparent with us. Um, So a couple of questions came to mind. I'm going to try and and juggle them here, but I'd like to first start with, Looking back in retrospect, uh, looking back in hindsight, what do you think as somebody who is already heavily entrenched and immersed within spirituality and knowing what your role was within that community, what do you think the disconnect was or what do you think you hadn't fully embraced or come to terms with that would still allow you to be in on the path of getting incarcerated? What was the disconnect there?
2: Oh yeah, well I can speak to that very clearly. So what I was ignoring in our, in the Buddhist tradition that I was part of, uh, was the whole ethical foundation of that tradition. Um, you know, there's very clear precepts and I was in violation of quite a few of them. You know, I think a lot might my, certainly myself, and I think others of my generation at that time, we were drawn to Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, you know, they'd had a, a depth of yogic training and inner training, right. And mind training and mindfulness training, meditation training, uh, primarily we're interested in the awareness aspect and the mind aspect. You know, a lot of us have been experimenting with psychotropic drugs, which there's a renewed interest in today Mm -hmm. around, you know, just understanding the nature of mind. So I was, I was much more interested in that and less focused on the, uh, the, uh, the ethical foundation and the moral discipline. Um, and, uh, and so that was the big disconnect for me. And, you know, I was also kind of a, I was raised Roman Catholic, so I was, I, I kind of thought of myself as a recovering Catholic. I was raised pre-Vatican, <laughs> pre-Vatican II Catholicism, which was, you know, uh, pretty fire and brimstone, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I had uh, nine years with nuns and four years with priests, right? I had Dominican nuns and then Jesuit priests. The Jesuits were great educators. I got a good education at that high school, but I still had that very intense. So so I was kind of, you know, running the other way from from, you know, morality and and religion and that kind of thing and of course you know being involved in the counterculture all those years where we just completely threw the rule book out right and you know and and you know my my uh at least my family and many i think of parents of my generation we they weren't really training us to think for ourselves they're training us to follow a program like you know this is the way you'll succeed and you get off that path you're going to be a bum or this or that you know so we weren't really trained to think for ourselves very much. And then we threw the rule book out because we thought our, you know, that the previous generation was hypocritical. And so we're out there just trying to figure it out on our own. Of course, we made a lot of messes. And, and so I, I, when I got involved in Dharma, I wasn't attracted to that part of it. I was attracted mostly to the awareness disciplines. And when I got locked up, I realized that was the major disconnect and I dedicated myself to living a life based on the precepts radically. So in prison, I mean, I, I formally took the precepts again uh, with several in several traditions and with teachers, and and you know the basic lay precepts are traditional to almost any religion. You know, uh, refrain from killing, refrain from stealing, refrain from lying, refrain from the misuse of intoxicants, refrain from sexual misconduct. Those are the basic lay precepts. There's a more expanded version of of novice monastic precepts, which I also took when I became a novice monk while well, I was in prison with a Tibetan teacher and fully ordained uh, monks in the buddhist tradition have hundreds of precepts but anyway they're all based on non-harming basically it's how how not to harm Mm
1: -hmm. and so
2: i focused you know that my life in prison was going to be completely grounded in the precepts and deep practice
1: beautiful okay well let me ask you this then dr fleet so knowing that you very much um subscribe to 100 percent ownership uh for each and every circumstance we individually face and free of blaming oneself or others so to really buy into that to really subscribe to that and to truly be integral with walking your talk i take it then that you have obviously forgiven yourself correct yes okay and at what point was the turning point for being able to reconcile that forgiveness within self
2: Well, I think first I had to really get in touch with the impact of what I'd done, Mm -hmm. you know, so I I was, I immediately hit the wall of what I'd done to my son. Right. And, you know, in many cases, what I'd done to my son and how I'd let so many people down in my world. Um, But I think I was still initially sort of justifying, you know, what I'd been involved that I'd been involved with drugs, you know, that, that, you know, there was, I was, there was an era when a lot of us who were involved in drugs, well, everybody's doing it. Uh, cocaine was considered a recreational drug, Uh, doctors, lawyers, judges, you know, politicians were doing it, you know, so I had all those justifications and, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, there were some interesting things you could learn about the mind on drugs if you could not go over the edge into addiction, which is damn near impossible. Uh, And uh, so I still had some of these internal justifications. But I I knew I had to deal with my own substance abuse issues, so I immediately got involved with the twelve-step group that we had there in the prison, which was a combination of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. We had great outside sponsors that came in. Uh, One of them became my sponsor and a lifelong friend, who we just lost last year, um, sadly, um, to cancer. And um, so, you know, in that weekly group, I was listening to. It was a male prison, so I was listening to one man after another get up and tell their story of their life completely unraveling around drugs. And in many cases, it was around cocaine and listening to those stories week after week after week for that first year, every artifice that I had been hanging on to of any justification of what I've been involved in uh, just completely crumbled. And I had to really face that I've been involved in something extremely harmful and that, you know, that I had not only harmed myself, but I had contributed to the harm of many, many others. And I had to really face that. And for me, I've often said that that was kind of, for me, the really the beginning of my spiritual path, uh, even though I've been on the path a long time. And you could say we're all on a path in some way. But, um, you know, it was that 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 deep sense of regret and remorse and, you know, a deep longing just to not cause any more harm. That, become, that became my deepest longing to just not cause any more harm. And yes, if possible, do some good, right? Be of benefit but really just this deep longing to to no longer be on beyond the wrong end of harm right of harming others mm-hmm. right there is no right end of harm but i mean you know what i mean to not be the mm-hmm. cause of harm and uh and so that really began the process for me and then forgiveness came as a result of being willing to be with that and and embrace that as well as doing a lot of practices a lot of the practices in in my um uh, in the Buddhist tradition, as well as in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. In particular, there are, there are a lot of practices that focus on self-compassion, compassion for others as well, but the ground the ground for being able to really genuinely radiate compassion to others is to have compassion for oneself to begin with. And so, um, so I was doing a lot of practice, uh, the practice helped, but it really started with connecting with really seeing the impact and, and honestly seeing the impact of the things I've been involved in and experiencing that real genuine sense of remorse and regret not not you know guilt like i'm so bad which is all about me but rather actual regret and remorse which is about the other right actually mm-hmm. really regretting the impact your your actions had on others
1: fantastic so let's talk a little bit about the relationship with your son because as you had mentioned at the top of the hour fleet you were not, uh, your son was 9 years old when you uh began the incarceration how old was your son when you were released, and did he have visitation with you while you were in prison, or was he just seeing you for the first time upon your release
2: yeah, so um he was 23, 24 when I was released, and uh when uh and and by the way, I'll just go ahead and tell you now we lost my son last year
1: i'm um,
2: sorry and uh yeah and i'll I'll put that in some context, but he died unexpectedly um back in September and it's that's been a really tough journey. Um so Robert's mother was from Peru and I had met her when I was living down in Peru and then she came back to the States and or it just never really worked. Probably a lot of it was my fault, but also she just never kind of really got comfortable in the culture up here and for a lot of reasons it didn't work. Um um but again most of which were my doing. And um so at any rate when I got locked up we would we'd already been separated for a while uh but uh she moved back to Peru with my son. And so during my time in prison, Robert mostly lived in Peru. And uh he'd been back and forth his whole life early early on, but had spent considerable time in the US, gone to school in the US. Uh but he moved back to Peru and with his mom. And my my family uh um brought him up every other year and he would come up during uh what was uh summer vacation for him and was basically Christmas time up here. Mm-hmm. And he'd come up and stay with my family who uh, I I was in Southwest Missouri. Uh, I was from St. Louis. So my family were in St. Louis, Missouri. So it was a couple hours drive. And um, so he'd stay with my brother who had a son the same. He had three sons, one the same age as Robert. And he would sometimes go to school with them a little bit. And they my family would take turns bringing him down to see me on weekends. So I get to see him a few times like that. Another time, the, the Tibetan Buddhist community that I'm part of uh, put together money and brought him up. And uh, and uh, he went up to Nova Scotia and did a youth program up there and then and then came down to see me again. So, you know, about every other year down the time I was in, I got to, you know, he'd be up here for like a month and I'd see him three or four times. Mm-hmm. And then I corresponded with him as best I could. I mean, he wasn't a great letter writer, as most kids aren't, but I, I wrote to him, um, but uh, but yeah, so we stayed in touch. And that was really the most painful part of being in prison. I mean, prisons a really uh, a incredibly challenging, painful experience regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but for me, nonetheless, the, the most painful aspect of it was being separated from my son and not being part of his life as he was growing up and being concerned about about him in that way. And uh, but we ended up being, uh, you know, fortunately, I did spend a lot of time with him, you know, before that so we had a bond and and um uh when he got out you know we had we had our issues to deal with but we've been very close and uh we stayed very close and and uh you know he uh he managed to stay out of trouble fortunately given that you know growing up with your dad in prison isn't helpful um he was very creative and um he got into the food industry because he had an uncle down in Peru. they had restaurants so he mostly worked in the food industry as a as a waiter, a server, a, a sommelier, and, and, and then he went to culinary art school, became a chef. And so i had been in that industry most of his life, although he was, he was also an artist and tried to create a clothing line at one point. But he worked hard, but periodically he would crash and burn. And I'd kind of pick up the pieces uh, for a while and it kind of went back and forth like that. But but he worked hard and was very creative. And I was always just kind of waiting for his life to blossom. But uh, in one of those crash and burn times, well, it wasn't quite crash and burn, but he had, he had his business had fallen apart, and he was trying to start another restaurant. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time in Peru, and he got beaten nearly to death late at night in a in a club in in Cusco, Peru. And I, he was in a coma. Fortunately, his friends found him where where he'd been dumped and got him into a good clinic and saved his life, really. And I got down there the next day, and he was in coma for almost ten days, and so that was quite a journey. He Came out of that with a frontal lobe head injury and just kind of completely crazy, basically, and and very hard to contain. And I managed to get him out of Peru and and try to get him in some clinics up here that didn't help him at all. I finally got him to a friend of mine's ashram up in Montana, and he eventually recovered. Uh, but it was a it took about seven eight months of wondering whether he was ever going to recover, and he was because he was just really you know, it was, it was tough to keep him from getting arrested or back in the hospital because he was totally out of control. And my partner at that time, um, my beloved Denise was dying of cancer. So she's on hospice care. My son's, you know, and it was, it was a really, really rough time, but he did eventually recover. And, um, um, uh, you know, sure. he went on to go to culinary art school and different things, but, but about six years after that, recovering from that, he started having seizures as a result of scar tissue in his frontal lobes. So he had to be on anti-seizure medication. And we think it's the seizures that led to his death. He often would wake up early in the morning with them and his mother found him down there and he was already gone. So we think he, seizures don't usually kill you, but they can trigger a heart event or a respiratory event. And we think Mm -hmm. that's what happened. And uh, that was back in September 14th. So he just suddenly, he was just gone. I had spoken to him just a few days before I you know close friends of him had been on the phone with the night before and he was, you know, he was positive and full of plans and everything. So he clearly didn't see it coming. And, and um, uh, so it was a, a big loss, a really tough loss.
1: Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. Very sorry to hear that, Fleet. Um, let me ask you then, as a result of what you've shared, you know, between the the, the passing of your son, Denise, who is your partner, succumbing to cancer. Mm-hmm you know, your time in prison, it just, I mean, cause it's, it's one hell of a ride that you've been on and, um, you know, for again, as evolved as you are in your spirituality, and as much as you're very on the right side of things now, and, you know, you can hold your head high and you're integral with self and you're more proud of the decisions in which you're making, because it is a very bittersweet story, because uh, there it, it, it does include, it, you know, there's a lot of loss embedded in your journey, in your story. How do you remain spiritually in flow, you know, within your vibration, your frequency, uh, trying to be high vibing, trying to really be at one with self. But as a human being, no matter how spiritually evolved you are, I would imagine that there would still be residuals, right? As somebody who experiences melancholy, as somebody who experiences, um, you know, just the the anniversary of significant dates, whether it be the date of your incarceration, the date of your release, the date of your son's death, the the, the date of uh, signifying Denise's passing. I mean, how do you remain above board with all of it so that there is no relapse or there is no um getting back into a dark night of the soul how do you stay preventative how do you stay proactive outside of just spirituality itself
2: well i I'll, I'll talk about two things one i'll go back to the radical responsibility model in a moment but i'm also going to talk about practice but yeah i don't know how evolved i am either just let's be clear about that but um uh you know, I have been through a lot of, you know, uh, the woman who had been my off and on girlfriend before I went to prison and really became my best friend throughout the prison years. We stayed in touch, although she went on with her life. Of course, we both wanted her to do that. But um, we actually considered getting back together when I got out of prison and she died a year after I got out of prison and my dad died a year before I got out and my mom died six months after I got out. Wow. Uh, so a lot of loss around there. And of course I lost my first spiritual teacher. Rinpoche, he died when I was in prison. He died back in 1989. Um, um, so I mean, 1987, but, um, um, first of all, I'll, i I'll, I'll talk about practice and, and even just, you know, I, I'm really committed to practice. I'm a, I do a lot of practice on a daily basis, both formal practice. And, and then I'm, you know, have integrated practice in my daily life and very intentionally in lots of ways and in a really ongoing way and i do a lot of retreat practice back next week i'll be on retreat all week my my wife sophie and i'll be doing an in-house uh retreat here at home where we'll be shutting everything off and doing like 10-12 hours of practice a day with study and so forth so i'm very committed to all that and when robert um when robert Died. Uh, when I got the news, I was just absolutely devastated, as you can imagine. And I was—I was—I was, I, I was scared. I was going to have a heart attack or a stroke. Actually, I could barely breathe. And I remember sitting there, and my wife over just kept saying, "Breathe, breathe, breathe." And you know, the the first few days were really, really, uh, really rough. But you know, I, I had remembered that when I when I lost uh, both, uh, actually, when I lost Karen, who died a year after I got out of prison. I actually experienced depression for the first time of my life, really. All those years in prison, depression was kind of like right there, just over the. You know, I could just see mm-hmm. that black hole and I just was committed not to go there. And, you know, really worked with my practice not to go there. But after when Karen died, I just fell into this like physical, like I, I could barely get up and get dressed in the morning. I had to, I had to keep working, but it was just like a struggle. It would take me, you know, a half hour to get dressed instead of 10 minutes. You know, it was just, I felt like I was swimming through mud. And that lasted for about six months, and then it just kind of miraculously lifted one day. That was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. And and when Denise died, um, I mean, she had an amazing, she was a very deep practitioner, and her death, she was able to complete her life in a beautiful way, and surrounded by family and friends, and it really, we have a lot of practices around preparing for death, and the whole transition of death in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So all that was happening, and it was, but once she was gone, she was gone, and I was absolutely devastated, and and I really fell apart. I mean, it really took me down. And and in retrospect, you know, I I really also I I didn't want to avoid grieving. I just wanted, you know, but uh, it, but it, in retrospect, I felt like I I really let it take me down too much. I didn't kind of really practice with it the way I could have. And so when Robert died, I was just committed to you know not letting this completely take me down. That I'm a practitioner. I need to work with this. That doesn't mean I'm going to avoid the grief at all. And I haven't been, but um but I'm gonna work with this. And so I, I just started practicing really even more intensively than I do all the time. In our Tibetan Buddhist tradition, we have a there's a tradition of a forty nine day intermediate state between one um uh, life and the next, uh, next rebirth. Mm-hmm. You know, Buddhism you believe in cycles of rebirth. And uh and that tradition it doesn't have to be forty nine days, but that's a traditional period. And so I was doing intensive practice with him and, and really trying to pray for him and communicate, you know, and with, uh, so I was practicing very intentionally and it was all about him. It was all about supporting him in his transition. And I got a really positive sense, even early on, Sophie and I did some very specific practices, even in the first two, three days following his death. And we both, without even talking to each other, we just kind of, in the midst of a couple of practices, we just looked at each other and both had this really positive hit that he was okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, but anyway, I just keep, kept that practice up very intensively. And, uh, You know, so actually over these, you know, in these months following Robert's death, I actually, uh, the pain is still there. The huge hole in my life is still there, but I have kind of made peace with it on some level. I've found some peace and strength and resilience and have been able to work, but it's hard one. You know, I mean, it's like really working with my body, heart, mind, very proactively, um, doing a lot of breath work and a lot of meditation practice and a lot of very specific practices and being very and also you know really working with my physical health and physical conditioning so i've just really been focused on that um very intensively uh i already was to a degree but i just ramped it all up right and so you know these things work these these spiritual technologies from the world's wisdom traditions actually work and uh and it's not about avoiding pain or avoiding grief but it's about uh but we do have the ability to work with these great human challenges and 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 have them actually end up being transformational, a part of our transformational path, even though it's not it's not something we would ever wish would happen for ourselves or others. But it's still, it does happen. And so, you know, are we going to let it take us down or, or, we, or can it leverage us to keep
1: growing? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so would you say that all in all, do you feel like you're more uh, would you say that you're generally in a happy flow state in terms of vibration and frequency? Do you believe that you're absolved for the most part of pain and suffering or are you back and forth? Is it a symbiotic relationship where you can't really have one without the other, but you're more in a state of awareness and gratitude and and just the choice surrounding how you choose to emit your energy and and how you choose to be conscious of your thoughts like how do you keep well, yourself Well
2: def, def, definitely the latter I'm hardly free of pain and suffering I haven't transcended personal suffering but no it's really about embracing it it's about mm-hmm. being with it right it's mm-hmm. about it, you know and and uh you know um you know the the particular path I have is really about you know dissolving anything that's an obstacle between ourselves and others and between feeling the rawness of life right so mm-hmm. it's about completely exposing ourselves to the to the rawness of life but also doing the things to have the resilience to do that right and to live in in the rawness of of the direct reality of life and you know and that's always a mixture it's 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 you know my uh my teacher trump often talked about you know sadness and joy mixed together, you know, or what he called Mm -hmm. the tender sort of heart of sadness, sort of genuine heart of sadness that, that one, you know, there's always, they're they're not separate. Right. And, uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's being willing to live in that state of vulnerability and, and, but developing the greater and greater, the more, the more we deepen our practice and work with these things, we develop deeper and deeper reservoirs of resilience, which allow us to live our lives in an ever more vulnerable and open way. And so, you know, it's, you get the full enchilada, right? It's not not about not, not experiencing pain.
1: True. Absolutely. And so when you look at the current state of our world right now, um, would you say, would you say, uh, fleet, would you, do you believe that people are more awakened? Do you believe that people are still asleep at the switch? Do you think people for the most part are ascending, do you think uh as a result of COVID and you know the the political culture and all those things at play do you think more people are awakening to what is fundamentally important or understanding that this is an inner journey rather than pointing the fa- the finger and saying oh it's Trump's fault or it's COVID's fault or it's a combination of a whole bunch of things at play do you think people have really gone more inwards in terms of owning things as a as opposed to being on the the sidelines of wanting to just perpetually blame
2: uh no (laughs) i (laughs) wish i could say yes right um you know i think we live in a culture of shame and blame and our current so-called woke political culture is all about blame Mm. Um you know I think it is good that people are raising awareness I've been an activist my entire life but I'm not too aligned with the current kind of form a lot of that takes because I think it's so grounded in blame and uh, you know I think it re- in many ways it becomes a dodge like if I can say the right thing and have the right political view and be the right woke you know have the right ideology and you know use the right language then I'm okay then I'm free right you know I don't have to I don't have to deal with my own stuff right True And uh so you know, I think it's uh, I, there are a lot of good things going on in the world. There are a lot of people genuinely waking up. And I make a real distinction between awakening and wokeness. But, um, you know, I think there are a lot of people waking up. And, of course, there's always been people waking up. And, and there's always a lot of people asleep. And it's hard to say which way is it going. You know, a lot of different spiritual traditions. You know, are we are we evolving towards a, a, a more enlightened age? Or are we devolving into a dark age? You know, it's it's hard to say. Both things tend to be, you know, seem to be going on at the same time. But I'm an optimist by nature um mm-hmm. so i'm i'm gonna i'm uh um you know beer in that direction i'm optimistic i you know i think the the biggest thing the as humanity that we really have on our we have a lot of challenges, but the climate emergency for me is the biggest it's an actual existential crisis that really you know this planet could be uninhabitable for humanity in a generation or two at our own doing. So mm-hmm. I think that's the most critical thing we need to face, uh, although, of course, we have all kinds of challenges we need to keep working with. But, you know, that's I'd like to come back to the idea of radical responsibility for a moment. I feel that's yes. really important there because and actually I developed this in this approach in, in prison because when I got locked up, it became first of all, I, I realized that immediately that I was in this incredibly negative world. Where everybody had a huge victim story. Everybody was armoring themselves with anger and bitterness. And I didn't want to come out of prison angry and bitter with a big victim story. I didn't want to live that way in prison. Fortunately, I'd had enough training to know I didn't. That's not who I wanted to be. I didn't want to live that way. And I realized I needed to embrace like 200 percent ownership for having got myself in there, what I was going to do while I was there and getting myself out. And so that just became really clear to me. And and all the things I was able to do, the fact that I was able to start two national organizations and two national movements from inside prison was all taking that approach. It wasn't about blame. It wasn't about it was all about, you know, what can I do? What can I do to make a difference? And how can I work with others, not demonize others and blame others, but how can I work with others to move things forward and find a skillful way to get good things to happen, like like creating the hospice program and doing lots of other things. So, you know, in our political landscape. Uh, and it's been this way for a long time, but it's getting more and more divisive all the time. You know, it, you know, tr- we have this cultural war between, you know, traditionalism and postmodernism played out on the landscape of modernity. And and that, you know, takes the form of the conservatives and the liberals or the Republicans and the Democrats and so forth. But, you know, it generally on the right, they they like to talk a lot about personal responsibility. And they don't want to hear anything about causes and conditions or the collective. Mm. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they think that's a slippery slope away from people taking personal responsibility. And then on the left, they don't want to hear anything about personal responsibility. They hate the word. Right. Because they think it's a slippery slope away from talking about the real circumstances, causes and conditions and things that affect people. Mm -hmm. And clearly, any, any reflective person, it's both. You know, we have to do both. And radical responsibility is really ultimately meant to be the integration of both personal and collective responsibility. Now, my first book is all about personal responsibility for the most part. Even though I, I I mentioned both and that there will be a second book, I mentioned that in the introduction. But the first book is about personal responsibility because I believe that's where we have to start. You can't go out and create collective responsibility until you're till you can embrace personal responsibility. And in Bingo. fact, you have you have a lot of people running around the world trying to change the world who haven't embraced personal responsibility and therefore you know I I think their work is less than effective, um, to say the least. So maybe well-intended, but, you know, we have to do our own work. And that's not to say that we have to become perfect before we can go out and try to change the world, but we need to be doing, at least doing both at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my second book will actually be about that integration and hopefully, you know, point to a, a maybe a, a, a middle way or a transform way for a political vision for this country where we can really come together and find our common ground and find a way forward. Because, you know, um, if the current, you know, I, I mean, I've been a a progressive and basically a lefty and a Democrat my entire life, but right now I don't feel very at home in the current extreme left progressive so-called progressive woke culture, and I think that's just going to create another a Trump. You know, unfortunately uh, mm-hmm. we have a fairly moderate president Biden, and I don't think he's going to let that take over. But if if that agenda really gets shoved forward, we'll just get another backlash, and you're going to get another Trump. And we have to. We have to get beyond this winner take all, you know, whatever party gets in, they think, okay, it's just going to be our way for four years, right? And we're going to do everything our way, you know, and we, we've got to get beyond this thinking because, you know, we're, we'll just keep doing that as a seesaw battle. In the meantime, meantime, we're going to burn the planet down, right? So True. we have we have to find a better way. And so this idea of embracing 100% ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life is First of all, there's a lot of circumstances we can face, both internally and externally, that we can see we had some relate, we have some relationship to. In some cases, we can see where we actually caused it, or we, we set ourselves up for it, or we at least allowed it through being unaware, or not doing our due diligence, or just being kind of lazy communicators, or being involved in enabling behaviors, all, all kinds of things. Uh, and then, of course, there are going to be circumstances that feel like they just landed on our head and everybody would agree we had nothing to do with it right unless it was like past life karma who knows about things like that and even (laughs) if there is such a thing you know what are you going to feel guilty about your past life that's ridiculous so um you know it's like there are things that just drop on our head and they may be incredibly unjust and and of course when that happens to people they they need validation they need compassion and of course but for ourselves, from our own perspective, from our own perspective, the most salient question for me is at some point is what am I going to do? Am I going to let this take me down? Mm. Or am I going to start embracing the choices I'm making? Because the choices I'm making now are going to determine the future for me. Absolutely. You know, even if I was really harmed in a completely criminal, unjust way, maybe I need to, you know, seek healing. But am I going to proactively seek healing? Maybe I need to seek justice. But can I do that? Not from the victim mindset, but from from a, from an ownership mindset, right? So the the key distinction of radical responsibility is really the distinction between ownership and blame. Because radical responsibility, responsibility has nothing to do with blame, not blaming ourselves, not others, certainly not blaming victims. It's about just owning things because that's the only place we have any power. You know, we True. can't control the world around us. We can't control other people. We try, but you know, we can't. We're uncontrollable. We know that because nobody can control us, right? We're gonna find our way to get our needs met. So you know the only place where we have real influences with ourselves and by focusing our energy on what we can do to transform our own lives and to contribute to transforming the world, that's where we can come together and really make a difference but But you know we have these real strong currents of shame and blame that run through our culture, and I think they're embedded in the kind of i I don't mean to demonize any religious traditions here, but you know the the kind of twist that was made on 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 Christianity with Calvinists. You know, the whole flawed nature of humanity, total depravity kind of theology has given us a mindset where human beings, absent some course of threat, don't behave well. And so mm-hmm. we have this negative view of ourselves. And of course, what kind of institutions do we create? We create fear and shame based institutions, we create fear and shame based law structures. You know, it's all created out of the sense of not trusting in our own innate goodness and the goodness of others. And you know, that's one of the strongest foundational principles in my Buddhist tradition, but it's not just in Buddhism. It's actually been the dominant view worldwide historically and cross culturally. It's just in you know, in the last period of the West that, that this that this view of the flawed nature of humanity became predominant. But but most cultures have believed in the innate goodness of humanity. And, you know, if when you when you trust in your own innate goodness, the innate goodness of others, you have one approach to life. And if you don't trust yourself or trust others, you have a different approach to life, right? Very and, true. Uh, that latter approach is creating the world that we're in. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the kind of deep transformation we need of uh people really finding ways to connect with their own goodness and the goodness of others and the goodness of life altogether and then embracing this kind of ownership, radical ownership for, for our lives instead of being focused on just constantly blaming. You know, or what, if you all you just turn on the television, all you see is blame, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. blaming everybody constantly.
1: Well, very true. But being cognizant of time here, fleet, I'd like to give you an opportunity before we have to, unfortunately part ways, but that's not to say you're not welcome to come back here. You've got an open standing invitation. And I think there's so much more that we could delve into with more time. And certainly you've got a second book on the horizon. So in wrapping up the show, fleet, I'd like to give you the opportunity to share with the listeners and the podcast subscribers, where can people get your book? When's the second book scheduled for launch? If you even have an estimated time of arrival for that. And, Mm -hmm. um, where can people connect with you
2: yes well thank you well well people can find me through FleetMall.com. that's just my basic website FleetMall.com. i i i deliver a lot of uh the radical responsibility work through uh an institute i call heartmind institute and that's heartmindinstitute.co heartmindinstitute.co and we have a, another uh big we just finished a big summit the best year of your life summit in january uh, we have another big summit coming up, the second annual Global Resilience Summit in May, and people will be able to find that uh, at globalresiliencesummit.org, but also through, through heartmindinstitute.co. Uh, and, that, and amazing, there'll be like 47 speakers all talking about the resilience we need to transform the world. Um, my book, they can go to radicalresponsibilitybook.com, radicalresponsibilitybook.com, find all about that. And if, they're, if people are interested in the prison work, They can go to prisonmindfulness.org, the work we do at that risk incarcerated returning on youth and adults, or they can go to uh, mindfulpublicsafety.org, which is all the work we do with public safety professionals. Ironically, I spent most of my, in that realm, most of the work, I I still go into prison, not during COVID-19, nobody's going in, but I still do go into prisons and work with prisoners. But a lot of my work today is working with police and correctional officers, probation and parole officers. Mm-hmm. So I'll be up in front of a, a group of a hundred correctional officers as an ex-con training them, which is pretty ironic. Brilliant. But that's a lot. That's a lot of the work that I do today. So that's mindfulpublicsafety.org. Mindful dot org.
1: Wonderful. Well, I just want to say, Dr. Fleetwall, it's been an absolute privilege to speak with you today uh your cadence was awesome you unpacked a lot in a very finite condensed period of time again i would really welcome the opportunity to bring you back onto living fearlessly with lisa mcdonald because there's still so much more to discuss along many central theme matters here which uh i personally would derive a lot of benefit from as would the listening audience and the podcast subscribers so for what you brought here today uh, I can't thank you enough for being raw, for being fragile, for being vulnerable, all these things that do make up conscientiousness and consciousness and and really making a difference and being part of the solution and truly being the change we all wish to see in this world. So in terms of what you've embodied, what you've learned, how you've transformed your principles and how you choose to navigate your life right now, I just want to say thank you for doing the work, uh, because obviously by choosing to do the work, That's what makes the planet collectively better for all. So thank you for that. I want to also thank the listening audience and the podcast subscribers for the gift of your time, for joining myself and Dr. Fleet Mall here on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. I'm very exceptionally clear on my purpose. My purpose is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. Until next week, when we're joined by yet another phenomenal guest, I want to wish you all my best. Please stay safe, healthy, and uplifted. Love and gratitude to all of you and to you as well, Dr. Fleet Mall. Thank you very much.